0: in this final letter to the Corinthian church. Before that, though, uh, let me just do a quick interrogation of the letter. We'll use those five W's that we do sometimes, you know, that good journalists use in their articles. Who, what, where, when, and why. Let's just knock out a basic summary of the letter. Who, we find in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, To the church that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So that's the who. Uh, It's Paul and Timothy writing to the church. Uh, What is this? It is the second biblical letter to the Corinthians. Now I said biblical letter because if you read the front of your bulletin this morning, you probably uh, have noticed that I am saying this is probably the fourth letter that Paul actually wrote to the church at Corinth. I'm not going to get into all the details of that today, but he probably wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians uh, that we don't have in the the Scripture. It wasn't kept as a part of the Holy Scripture. And then the second letter he wrote is what we know of as 1 Corinthians. And then most uh, scholars believe that there is a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, sometimes called the severe letter, the painful letter, that he writes to them. And uh, you'll notice in the passage we read from 1 Corinthians 16, Paul was saying, I'm, I'm looking to come to visit you and might stay the winter with you. Well, Paul doesn't come right away uh, like he had planned at the end of First Corinthians. Uh, but he does send them another letter uh, down to, uh, the, to the church at Corinth and they respond well to the letter. And Titus brings that news back to Paul, who's in northern Greece at the time, in Macedonia. And Paul is encouraged, although there are still some problems in the church that Titus lets him know about. And so then Paul writes his fourth letter, his final letter that we know of to the Corinthians, which we call 2 Corinthians. So this is the second biblical letter to the Corinthians, likely the fourth letter overall. So um, the structure of this letter as you think of it, is, uh, it's fairly basic. Um, the chapters 1 through 7, Paul is defending his ministry as an apostle, and we'll talk about why in a minute. Chapters 8 and 9 in the middle is the longest teaching that Paul does in any of his letters on the subject of giving, and he's talking specifically about a collection for poor Christians in Jerusalem that he's been taking. We've referenced it before. And then in chapters 10 through 13, he finishes off with another defense of his ministry as an apostle. So where? Our third W. Paul's writing, as I mentioned, from somewhere in Macedonia, which is northern Greece. And of course, he's writing to the church at Corinth, which is in southern Greece. And if you look at chapter 7 and verse 5, or, or here in chapter 1 and verse 1, you'll notice those two things. The when, when did this happen? We believe that this happened on his third missionary journey. um, And it's recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about Paul going throughout all of Greece and encouraging the people there. Um, After, as I mentioned, he received a report from Titus that was encouraging. And then sending him back with this, this letter to arrive to the Corinthians before he himself would get there and visit. And you can read more about that in chapter 7 as well, verses 6 and 7, and then chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Now, why is Paul writing this letter, the final W? Paul is responding here largely in this letter to the false teaching of what he calls the super-apostles. And he references uh, these people twice by that name in chapter 11 and 12. Uh, if you want to read a quick synopsis of this, you, you can read about it in the first 15 verses of chapter 11. Uh, he goes after these people. Evidently, they are people who are passing themselves off as apostles, um, and they are, they, are, um, uh, they are slandering the reputation of the apostle Paul in the process, and seeking to elevate themselves as the leaders in the church at Corinth. So that's what he's doing. He's also showing, of course, as I mentioned, how God's power works in weakness. And that is a major theme, the theme, I think, of the book. You know, the world is full of human weakness, unavoidable trials. And one of the most common of these weaknesses in the world is poverty, And as you read through the middle section of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, about the collection that he's taking, you see that Paul was very concerned about the poverty among the believers in Jerusalem. And he had been encouraging Christians throughout the known world as he traveled to meet the needs of these Christians. And in chapter 8 and verse 2, in fact, I'm going to be referencing passages through this letter constantly this morning. So have your Bible on speed dial there, okay? And let your fingers uh, do the walking uh, quickly, because we're going to go from passage to passage to passage. Or you may just want to jot them down and go back and read them later. But in chapter 8, verse 2, there are some Macedonian churches that Paul references who were marked by extreme poverty. And Paul says, they're the ones who are leading the charge in giving. To the poor in Jerusalem. The poorest of people in Macedonia are showing the way. That strikes modern man and woman as odd, doesn't it? The ones who are extremely poor are the ones who are leading when it comes to giving. Then as you think about these super apostles that Paul is after, with all their apparent strength and magnificence and elegance and slickness, we're confronted by Paul's own weaknesses in this letter. In the very first chapter, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, you see Paul references his afflictions and even the despair that Paul endured. Despair. In, in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul says he's been afflicted in every way. He's been perplexed. He's been persecuted. He's been struck down. In chapter 7, verse 5, he describes being afflicted at every turn with fightings within, or fightings without, and fear within. Isn't it interesting that Paul would send this letter back to the Corinthians who were dealing with these super, super apostles, and he's writing about his weaknesses openly, When the super apostles are the ones who are marked by strength and power and might. But Paul was weak. And when you look at the later chapters especially, it seems that even certain of Paul's personal characteristics had come under attack. Over in chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul describes himself as Humble when people meet him face to face. It could be also translated timid or weak. In chapter four, verses eight and nine, he says he's been afflicted, as I mentioned before. Um, down in um, chapter ten and verse ten, it says that he that he was weak, that his speech was of no account, and as a weak person, of course. He had many trials that came into his life. Look at chapter 11. Paul takes time to sarcastically, very sarcastic in these later chapters, he sarcastically is bragging about his weaknesses. Look down at verse 23 of chapter 11. This is the opposite of what the super apostles were doing. They're boasting about all their strengths. Paul says, I got some boasting to do. Chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, And he had already said this in the letter back in chapter 6. Go back to chapter 6. Look at verse 4 in chapter 6. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. He goes on to say, dishonor through slander. We're treated as impostors." As unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing. He put his weaknesses on full display for everyone to see. These are just some of the hardships that Paul faced, and he writes openly about them. And his ministry was opposed. That's why some people thought Paul's out of his mind like we read in chapter 5. That's why he was harassed by the political authorities, like we read in chapter 11. So is it any surprise that here in this letter, Paul refers to his own ministry of preaching the gospel back in chapter 2 and verse 16 as being the fragrance of death to some people? That's what he says. He says in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, you guys know this one. His gospel was veiled, covered to those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul really sums up his weakness, like I mentioned earlier, in that famous thorn in the flesh passage. Famous thorn in the famous thorn in the flesh. Say that three, five times. Famous thorn in the flesh passage in chapter twelve, verses seven and eight. Let me read it again for you. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from getting from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. What do you make of all this? Paul was weak in the sense that his body was beaten. His reputation was shredded. His message had often been rejected. If you're the kind of person sitting here who likes to roll With winners, you might not join up with the Apostle Paul. He was weak. And that's the difference between him and the super apostles. The successful ministers with their smooth and popular messages. They were strong. They inspired courage. Can you imagine if you're on the pastoral search committee at Corinth? Who would you go for? Paul brought you the gospel. Of course, you're thankful for that. He's sincere. He suffered for it. Bless his heart. But on the other hand, these other people, they're pretty impressive. Look at where their degrees are from. When they speak, oh, you can listen to these guys for hours and hours. Who, who best represents Christ? These magnificent ministers Or the afflicted, suffering, mocked, weak Paul. There's some surprising phrases that Paul uses when he talks about his own troubles. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how much Paul was being afflicted. What does he mean by that? He uses a similar phrase over in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, he's carrying in the body the death of Jesus. There it is. One of the most beautiful sentences in the whole Bible. Mark this one down if you don't have it darked. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Though he was rich, speaking of Jesus, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus himself was poor, wearied, suffered, died, crucified in weakness. This is not what a lot of people think of when they think of or when they imagine God, is it? In our modern day, if someone's going to try to describe or imagine God, they imagine a, a larger godlike form of themselves a lot of times, a force out there somewhere reflecting their values, the things that, that are important to them. They imagine kind of this religious Superman, superhero, someone who's invincible, maybe even like a super apostle. If you want one verse that summarizes all of 2 Corinthians, it's chapter 5 and verse 7. And you know this verse too. We walk by faith, not by sight. Paul's writing to them so that they, look at, down at verse 12. He wants them to be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in The heart. It's clear, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, the message of Christianity that you and I take to this world is not about how we can guarantee people to have a comfortable life in this world. That's not the message of Christianity. It's not a message that we can guarantee you're going to have victory and success in this world. It's not a message that we can guarantee that your reputation is going to be sterling and that you're going to be well thought of by everyone in this world. If anything, you can almost guarantee the reverse of all three of those if you live faithfully. Paul says any kind of assessing of spirituality by the outward appearance of is opposed to the faith. But even Paul himself had to learn this lesson, which can give us hope, because we struggle with this kind of thing too. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh in a worldly way. Even though, here's what Paul says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Do you see what Paul's admitting to there? He's saying at one point, I regarded Jesus as every bit of a failure as he appeared to be. And I persecuted his followers. He regarded Christ from a worldly point of view. He was mocked. He was betrayed. He was crucified. He was weak. Hardly a model that any of these popular Corinthian super apostle ministers would want to follow. And it's no wonder then, as we get into the latter part of the, of the book, in chapter 11, verse 13, Paul condemns these super apostles as false apostles. He calls them basically actors, masquerading in a costume of righteousness and wisdom, but they're covering up what's on the inside, what's in their heart. Look what he says there. Here are your super apostles. For such men, verse 13, are false apostles... Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Okay, Heather Hills, are you getting the message of this letter? Are you getting the idea? If you can live the Christian life... By sight, by outward experience and appearance, by worldly measurements, it will not work. It has never worked. It was these servants of Satan who were doing that, disguising what people would see of them. It's the people who genuinely know Jesus, who live by faith, who walk by faith how are you doing in that this morning how are you doing walking by faith and not just what you see think hard about that question real strength for a christian Is not a declaration of self sufficiency. It's a surrender of ourselves to God. It's a relying on His promises and His provision so that He gets the glory and not us. The late actor Richard Burton was once uh, said to say that the weak rely on Christ, but the strong do not. He was right, wasn't he? But I don't think he understood a word that he said. Do you know yourself to be weak, brothers and sisters? Paul realized that the power and strength that he had in his life only came from the Lord. And often it came in and through his own weakness. For example, these false uh, apostles... They may have had wonderful resumes. Letters of commendation that were very impressive. Look back in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ. Delivered by us. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such, listen to this, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have toward Christ, through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. That's why over in chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul quotes these wonderful words from the prophet Jeremiah. And you guys know this one. Let the one who boasts, say it, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The super apostles have got it all wrong. The point was never their power, their grandeur, their majesty. The point has always been The power of God. Like Paul, many of us this morning have seen times of great difficulty. Some, as you've heard today, are going through it right now, today, this very moment. It's in trials, and I know that you guys know this, it's in trials when God really presses us that we tend to see the truth of all this. When we're not suffering, a lot of times we just kind of default to walking by sight again, don't we? And Sometimes God gets our attention through trials, through suffering, to remember it's all by faith. How do we reflect the glory of God? Knowing that, that real strength belongs to the Lord and it brings God glory. How do we do that? Look at what Paul said in, in uh, chapter 3 in verse 18. We all, Paul writes, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image into one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How do we grow? From the Lord. From the Spirit. We rely on God. God shows himself faithful, he transforms us. He's always transformed us. So he gets the glory. Always gets the glory. And that's how he's always planned things. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. That's what the super apostles were doing. But Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7. We sang about this this morning. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. And let's be, let's be honest. Our jars of clay are jars of clay. and many of us, our jars of clays are cracked. They're a, little, they're a little fading. The paint's not as nice as it used to be. There's some chips. There's some pieces that have been glued back on. It's jars of clay. Why? Why did he put the glory in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's all about him. This is the point of the letter, brothers and sisters. This is the point of the letter. God was not glorified. By calling some fruitful patriarch with hundreds and hundreds of kids to be the father of his people. Well, who did he call? Abraham. Sarah. Barron. God didn't, God didn't glorify himself by calling the mighty Egyptian nation with all of its chariots and its huge army. No, he called their slaves, didn't he? God wasn't glorified either by just letting the Israelites line up against the Egyptians and wipe them out in battle. No, no. He sent plagues. And he even hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then he led the slaves out to the edge of the Red Sea and got them trapped. <laughs> and then he doesn't let them fight and win there either. He supernaturally parts the sea. And then he and then, you know, he, he kills the army himself. And this happens over and over and over and over throughout the whole Bible. It's the story of the Bible. This is how God does things. He puts us in hard places and He gets glory through it. So He didn't call 12 super apostles to be His disciples, did He? Peter, James, John, fishermen tax collectors he called 12 dull people he didn't call a Gentile to be the missionary to the Gentiles that's what our missiology would tell us to do today you know get, get a native person to go to the native persons no he, he called an ultra nationalist named Paul to be the minister to the Gentiles and then of course there's Jesus himself right the greatest example. Who would have planned, if you or I had set up the story of of salvation, which of us would have planned an intervention by the creator of the universe to look like the ministry of Jesus? Nobody sitting here would have planned it that way. Jesus exchanged the temporary passing comforts of this life for eternal glory. And to miss that is to miss the point of all of it. God works in us for his own glory. Why do you think God has chosen you and me? For his glory. So in all these areas of your life, where you're experiencing pain and suffering now, or you will, at where you have. God can show himself to be sufficient, not just to you, but to all the people around who see it. Everything from looking for a job, facing surgeries, trying to sort things out in your marriages, These are the things God has planned to use to bring him glory. We've never known a God in any other way. Why do you think he's chosen you and me? Because we were so virtuous? Hardly. Because we've never broken the law? Because we've never sinned against God? Because none of us have ever committed adultery or ever hated or ever coveted in our hearts. He's chosen us because He wants to make the gospel of His grace clear to everybody around us. And for that, you and me are exhibit number one. If you miss that, then when you come to church on a Sunday morning, you may think you're just here in a morality club. You're here to be a good Baptist. You're here to be a moral upstanding citizen. And if that's what you're trusting in, you'll die in your own self-righteousness. Never understanding the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross for his own sin. You remember that, right? He died on the cross for your sin and my sin, if we repent and believe in him. And that's why Paul writes in chapter 4 and verse 14, look at this verse. It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I don't know why Greg's in the hospital again. I don't know why Larry's in the hospital again. I don't know why people have to continue to suffer. Why, why people linger with chronic pain and illness. I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that. I can't give you an answer to that. But I do know that God uses all of that. To bring glory to himself. And he does it as you depend on him. As you acknowledge your weakness. As you rest in his strength. And in his power. As hard as it gets. As grace extends to more and more people. It will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God every time I see Jeff Dahl come to church on a Sunday morning, brother, it increases Thanksgiving to the glory of God. And I could go right around this room and and go person after person after person who are persevering through hardship, through suffering, but you're persevering. You're faithful. You're enduring. And it's bringing glory to God. Every one of you. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. We're going to sing a final song here in a minute. Let me try to wrap this up with a couple of thoughts of application today. How do we respond to this kind of a a message, this kind of overview of the book? What do we do when we begin to see our own weaknesses, our failings, our transgressions, our sins? Obviously, you know, we hope and we pray that we'll be sorry for them, right? Paul talks in chapter 7 that sorrow comes in two varieties. There's a worldly sorrow that leads to nothing but death. And then there's another sorrow which leads to a changed life, a sorrow that leads to repentance. That's the kind of sorrow that we should pray that we see in our sinfulness this morning. A sorrow that leads us to repentance. But you know, when it comes to our weaknesses and our suffering, we have to remind ourselves we don't belong to ourselves. You remember that? We don't live for ourselves anymore. Our whole lives are for the Lord. Not just today when we all get together and, you know, be religious. Every day. Every event on our calendar. We're living for the Lord. He has bought us. We belong to Him. Our lives, the direction of our lives, every blessing, every trial, it's all from Him. And it's for Him through our suffering and through our dependence and our trust and our perseverance. As hard as it gets. Paul says in in chapter 5, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us Because we've concluded this, Paul says, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's who we're living for. Jesus died for us to live for him. That's what we're supposed to do with our lives. He writes on down in in verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how God wants to bring glory to himself. By you and I trusting in Christ for his righteousness completely and only. As the Lord said to Paul in chapter 12, 9 and 10, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not easy to hear when you're lying in a hospital bed. God's got you right where he wants you. his power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. And he's done that all through the letter, hasn't he? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, And here's the title of the sermon again. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the way it's always been for those who follow Christ. It's the way it was with Christ himself. So how do you keep going? We're going to learn a lot about that in the next year. How do you keep going? What if you're one of those who's facing circumstances today? that you think are overwhelming, what do you do? What do you do? One final passage. Chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Sanctification. For this light, momentary affliction. You say, it doesn't feel light. It doesn't feel momentary. it been going on for a long time. Here's why it's light and momentary. Because when you compare it, To as Paul says, what God is preparing for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When you compare your suffering, and the suffering's real, (sighs) boy, is it real. But when you compare it to eternity, it's the glory that God has laid up for you in heaven. then your suffering can be viewed as light and momentary. Verse 13 or 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Faith. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. Suffering's horrible. We all suffer different times, different measures. Some for little bits, some for long bits, some chronically, some all their lives. Suffering's horrible. It is going to end. You realize that, right? It doesn't matter how long it is. It doesn't matter how intense it is. It will end. All of us will be with Christ and there will be no more suffering. And eternity goes on forever. So what do we do? We fix our eyes, and we do not lose heart. That's what we do. We fix our eyes not on what is seen. If you try to go that way, you turn into those super apostles. You're going to crash and burn. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, on the eternal. And then God will receive the glory. And that's what we want.